Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the web, where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality, all in the service of conscious evolution. And my guest this week walks deeply in the paths where science meets spirituality. Sam Wernham is, amongst many other things, an interfaith minister, founder of the River Dart Wild Church and the Wild Monastics that are associated with it. And she describes herself as a Christian Druid, which is such an inspiring, enthralling and deeply intriguing concept. In the conversation you're about to hear, we explore Sam's life, which progresses from a childhood in church schools through Buddhism and Kabbalah and Druidry and back to this deeply earth-based, wild, connected Christian spirituality that then leads out into activism in the world. It was a deeply fascinating conversation and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. People of the podcast, please welcome Sam Wernham. So, Sam Wernham, welcome to the Accidental Gods podcast on this extraordinarily changeable Wednesday morning. I woke up and it was beautiful, brilliant sunshine. And then the ponies were running back into the stables because we had shooting hailstones, really quite big hailstones out of the sky. So I hope it's nicer down there in Devon with you. Yes, there's a blue sky and yet the air is chill and there are still light frosts at night. So it's quite an interesting paradoxical kind of early summer I think yes yes okay so we're going to talk today about wild monastics and the river dart wild church and so really to give everybody a sense of context and give us a shape of how things arose can you tell us how Sam Wernham came to be the person who started these things well I've been pondering this and thinking about my story, seeing what kind of pictures emerge and thinking back to my childhood and having these two elements. I mean, it's interesting we just talked about the weather, actually, and the combination of the chill and the blue sky because that's the kind of image that I can relate to from my childhood. There was so much that was beautiful and there was also an element of chill, of trauma. And I think both those Mm. elements are very significant parts of wild church and wild monastics. So when I was seven, just to give you a little picture, if you like, my family moved into one of the first houses on a new estate that was being built in the gardens of these Victorian houses. Wow. So I grew up with all these beautiful gardens sort of on the edge of this building site. And that's where I kind of spent my childhood really, was was being outside um, with friends and feeling, well, there were gardens gone wild. I mean, I love the story of the secret garden and, and it had that kind of quality. It was like growing up in the secret garden in some ways. That's where I met my sense of the sacred. And and yet also what was happening, of course, was that as the estate was developed, those gardens were gradually destroyed. 
Oh, right, yeah. And so we had this experience as children of watching our landscapes and our dens and the places where we made our journeys. Mm. And they were beautiful. You know, they, there was statuary, fountains, the azalea garden, the orchard, you know, the great trees, rhododendron forests, just gradually being bulldozed and, and destroyed. And I think that's almost like a kind of metaphor for me. I mean, it wasn't, it was a real experience, but it's also like a metaphor for me of some of the ingredients of the wild church, you know, this celebration and engagement with all life. Uh, with the sacred being in all life, and also this kind of environmental activism in the face of you know the reality of of what's happening to the great garden of our earth, if you like. Yes. So I think that's a good place to start, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. And so, did you have a spiritual childhood? You you met the sense of the spirituality in the gardens, but was it a spiritual household? Yes, it was. I mean, my parents called themselves Christian with a small c. Uh, they didn't go to church themselves. They were very focused on ethics, ethical values, you know, on living spirituality. Uh, my father was very active in the Liberal Party. My mother was a craftswoman and very active in adult education. So I kind of grew up with groups of women, you know, in, in my living room learning traditional women's crafts and being dragged around canvassing with my dad right. and working at liberal fundraisers. So, you know, it was a very kind of engaged spirituality. Yeah. And yet I also went to church schools. And again, that was a kind of experience that had this kind of warmth and chill factor. I hadn't been baptised, so it was amazing I even got in, to be honest. Um, so I was excluded from all kinds of things. And yet also I found a lot of inspiration and a lot of beauty um, in, in scripture, in story, in times of prayer, in liturgy. It was a very paradoxical experience, really, yes. So, because this isn't my field, so not having been baptised, were these... Um very hardcore Christian schools? Because I think most of the kind of extended family, I think they're currently going to probably church schools. I'm not sure many of them have been baptised. And I'm not aware of it being an issue. That doesn't mean it isn't. It just means I don't know about it. But was this a very strict set of church schools? Or is that just the way that it is? Well, I think it was a, you know, it was a reasonable time ago. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> for one thing so the world is changing the world is changing absolutely and and it was definitely on the anglo-catholic it was linked to a school in Tunbridge wells st mark's it was linked to a church rather st mark's which was definitely on the anglo-catholic side and you know where sacraments are important and right. baptism is, is a fundamental sacrament and so there were things that i couldn't do and i couldn't participate in because i hadn't been baptized and did you feel excluded? Did that did that change your sense of self? Yeah, I mean, it was that it was a real experience. It's you know, we got to the point where there were certain kinds of preparations and certain kinds of studies. There were three of us who were not considered to be Christian, and we had to sit in the classroom on our own. 
So there was a, a Hindu boy and there was a boy from an atheist family and there was me. Wow. Goodness. That, I can imagine, being quite a formative experience. It was. And there were certain trips that I wasn't able to go on. So I would be left behind to sit in the classroom by myself. And, you know, when we went to church, I would be sitting by myself in the back row, kind of watching everything from a distance. So it was a very interesting mix of being included and excluded at the same time. Yes. And were you given the option to be baptised on the way through? Was that, you know, we'll let you into the club if you go through this ritual? You know, it's funny. I don't remember that ever coming up. I mean, I was I was young. When I'm talking about my first school, which was until I was seven. No, that's not that's not true. I'm talking about my second school, which was from my from seven. So that would have included confirmations. So I was probably those classes that we weren't involved in were possibly confirmation classes. Right. Which is what everyone else would have been doing. But because I hadn't been baptized, I couldn't be confirmed. Right. It's interesting, isn't it? A lot of it, a lot of missing information. And did you at any point in your schooling, not necessarily in this this particular school, did you know at that point that your calling was within the church? I felt a very deep connection to Christianity, to Christ, to Mary. My mother had been educated in convent schools. Ah. So there was a very kind of creative, uh, spiritual approach to Christianity in our household uh, and very open. You know, my parents would invite in the Mormons, they would invite in the Jehovah's Witness to talk to us so we could hear different Christian perspectives. Although I was sitting in the back row, you know, of communion, watching from afar, sung Eucharist, I loved it. I found it really moving. I read the Bible every day mm. and found it really inspiring. So I had these kind of Again, these very mixed experiences. And I suppose if I thought about my future at all, perhaps I sometimes thought, oh, well, I could be a nun. Right. You know, because this was a time where women weren't in the priesthood. So, Right, of course, yes. Yes, the options were limited. Yeah. But then you didn't become a nun. So somewhere along the line, your life took a different path. Well, I think when I was 16, I actually I was on the bus. And somebody gave me a copy of Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Right. Alan Watts? Uh, no, Shinryo Suzuki. Okay. Japanese Zen master, uh, Shinryo Suzuki. And I think I was at a point anyway in my life where, I mean, I was reading a lot of the Christian mystics. And yet my experience of church in different forms was I couldn't find overt teaching on the kind of mystical contemplative hmm. Practice. It existed only in the theory, really, and something that happened in the past. So I think that was a a real gateway moment for me because it was about it was talking about practice in the present and, and how to do it. And I hadn't been able to find that in the Christian tradition. It wasn't that it didn't exist, but I didn't have access to it, and so that took me on a different path. Okay, so I, I, we are going to get to the wild church and the wild monastics, but I think what drew you there is really interesting. Jumping ahead a little, you have a, a master's in, I think, core process psychotherapy, is that right? Mindfulness-based psychotherapy. 
Okay, so not quite the same. So it's not from Karuna. It is from Karuna. It just so happens that in the years that I did it, they called it mindfulness-based, uh, right. which I think I prefer, actually, because it's perhaps more descriptive. A lot of people don't know what core right. process means. Core process is, right. So so you became a psychotherapist. Was that? Did, did you have a period of doing other stuff in the meantime? I'm trying to kind of create a chronology of your life. So at 16, someone's given you Zen mind, beginner's mind, and the doors have opened for you to contemplative experience as a lived practice. Where did that take you? Well, that took me into the Buddhist tradition. Um, I, I went to India. I spent time in the far north of India, in Ladakh and Zanskar. And again, it was this mixture of being in wilderness locations and in very remote communities, so very inspired by the wild and also engaging in, in meditative practice in the Buddhist tradition. And then the following year, I went to Tassajara, uh, to Zen Center in California. And again, you know, it's about being in a wilderness location and developing a contemplative practice. And I was quite deeply immersed. I came back to Gaia House in Devon. That's what brought me to Devon. I was the manager at Gaia House. I spent a long time. I spent about 18 months in retreat with a long retreat, and that was wow. very profoundly transformative for me. Um, and that included a very significant loss. My, my fiancé at the time committed suicide while we were on retreat. So I guess that was also the opening of, I came out of Buddhist retreat, out of Gaia House, and realised that I needed to do some therapy. <laughs> that I was literally sitting on a lot of trauma, both from my childhood, and I couldn't just meditate my way through it. Right. So I actually spent five years in a psychotherapeutic, psychospiritual community in Dartington. Wow. Uh, initially as a as a guest and then as a host that actually took me back into christianity it was it was based on the work of my, my dr frank lake uh who who developed clinical theology oh interesting tell us a little bit more about that yeah, dr frank lake had this idea of the dynamic cycle so drawing on the life of christ and relating that to the development of a human person and he said that we are born into the womb of spirit. We are held by the divine. And that experience is then mirrored back to us by how our primary caregivers hold us, really. So if we get a good enough holding, it enables us to be. It enables us to be in the womb of spirit. And if we don't get a good enough holding, it, it breaks that sense or it wounds that sense of being and then that sense of either a healthy being or wounded being affects the kind of next stage of our development uh, which is about kind of manifesting our being into the world having a sense of well-being as we start to grow as a child and then as we grow into maturity as an adult there's a kind of shift in the cycle where we go from sort of being what he called an input phase to being in an output phase. So for a healthy or for a good enough, in a good enough childhood, 
we have a sense of, we come out of that with a sense of status, what he called status, with a sense of being and well-being that enables us to then serve, that enables us to kind of move into the world and express that sense of status through service in life. So that's the kind of nutshell, if you like. And he saw the life of Christ as a kind of model of, of that, of what it is to, to grow up and have a sense of being and well-being and status and then be able to move into, into service. Right. That was my question because otherwise it was sounding, I, I wasn't seeing the Christ in what's a f- relatively, I think, common model of development that you will have got doing the Masters in Mindfulness-Based Psychotherapy at Karuna. Was that, did you find Frank Lake and then do the Masters or had you done the Masters and then you found clinical theology? No, I found, I mean, I was in my early 20s when I moved into this community. And so my experience was of, of Frank Lake's work in a very, very practical way. Right. You know, living in community, doing a lot of group therapy, art therapy. And then it was much later, it wasn't until I was in my 40s, that I, I studied mindfulness-based psychotherapy. But what was interesting was that Karuna, at Karuna, and specifically through the work of Franklin Sills, you know, he studied Frank Lake himself. So he was bringing together clinical theology and Buddhist psychology. Right. And that's one of the reasons I chose to go to Karuna, because it so perfectly matched my experience, which was bringing together Buddhist psychology and clinical theology. Brilliant. Thank you. This is so interesting. We could actually spend the whole of the podcast discussing that amalgamation of of those two things and how we live them in the world. But I do want to talk about the wild church. So we won't necessarily run all the way down that rabbit hole. But I am curious to know how you filled the gap then from being in this community, which sounds glorious. And I do want to know a little bit more about that, partly because I have a dream of a shamanic monastery, which I think might be pretty much exactly what you're describing. And if it's already happened, I kind of want to know how it works. Um, But also, did you stay there or did you move kind of back out into more of a version of consensus reality before you did the Masters? What Fill us in those kind of 20-year gap in an edited highlight. Yes. Well, I I don't know that I ever came back into consensus reality. (laughs) Good woman. <laughs> That's very good to know. Uh, but yes, I stayed there for five years. I met my husband there and we had our first child there. And it was literally a crazy place to be. It was wonderful. Uh, it was very creative. It was very anarchic. And I think we hit a point where we realised that it wasn't the best place to raise a family. You mean if they ever wanted to move into consensus reality, it wasn't modelling it for them? Or was it just too unbounded? I think it was too unbounded. And also, you know, it was a place where people could really dive deeply into their childhood trauma. So I think... It had a different, you know, it was like we were just in a different season of our lives where actually we were trying to build healthy mm. experiences for our children or for our first child. And, of course, our, our child w- was very activating for <laughs> other people that were there. 
Okay, yeah, it's beginning to sound quite a combustible mixture. All right, yes, yes. yes. So you left that community. It, I mean, it was it was a happy leaving. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't. A, it was a, it was a natural leaving. It wasn't a break, but I think it just became clear that everybody would okay, be happier uh, if if we entered into a different stage of life and. We wanted to make a home, you know, living living in community as the only family. We wanted to make a home of our own, so we, we bought a little derelict lodge. My husband was an architect. Uh, we set up uh, uh, an eco-architectural practice together, oh. and we we bought a little derelict lodge on, on Dartmoor, and we kind of took the next stage in finding a way to kind of live on the land, create an eco-home, raise our children, homeschool, and do all that kind of stuff. So that was the next piece. So so you spent quite a lot of time being a mother and homeschooling children. And then was it towards the end of that period that you went to Karuna and studied the psychotherapy, that you then enter a new phase of life once the children have left home? Uh, no, it wasn't because there's another piece in between. I have a very complicated life. Uh, so there we were living on Dartmoor, homeschooling, growing our own food, foraging for wild everythings, uh, you know, knitting clothes and generally living this very kind of land-based life and exploring Christian spirituality and Druid spirituality alongside each other. I was running facilitating groups. That was really the beginning, I suppose, of what became Wild Church began in the community with the first ever group that I started, which I called the No Holds Barred Bible Study. It was also known as Pagan Women's Bible Study. And then when we left to set up our own home on Dartmoor, I then started uh, two more groups. One was based on exploring Celtic spirituality, so bringing together the Druid and the Christian, well, the pagan and the Christian, because you can be a Christian Druid like me. Uh, and the other was based on exploring uh, Jewish and Christian Kabbalah, because hmm. when I was in the community, my therapist was a Kabbalist. So wow. that's another piece of the mix. Yes. Um, so I think we've got all the pieces in now. So we're living in our home and on Dartmoor. Uh, but for my husband, it, it still wasn't wild enough. You know, he needed more wild. Uh, so he really wanted to move to the Highlands. And we, we used to go there every year for quite a few weeks every year for our family holidays. And, you know, he, he really felt strongly that's what we needed to do was we needed to move further into the wild. And it was a bit of a crisis because, you know, I was a young woman with young kids and I wasn't really sure that actually I wanted. <laughs> that much wild. Yeah. The Highlands are a whole different step of wild. Yeah. Given that we were already living quite a high level of wild and it's hard work, you know, just simple things like, you know, when the only form of heating you've got is in your home is wood burning stove and you've got young kids, you know, and you're spending your whole time chopping and carrying wood. And trying to dry clothes in the winter when it's damp and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, you know, you're living on a low income, you're foraging for food, you're growing your own food, you know, with a baby strapped on your back and a toddler. It's 
it's, you know, it's, it's a really demanding life. And to kind of take that north felt like a big ask. Yes. So for people listening who, who aren't familiar with British geography, this is we're talking about the Highlands of Scotland, which are in many ways very like Dartmoor in that both have been depopulated by colonial metropolitan English people who then put sheep on the land, which really sheep racked land is not great. And in Dartmoor and in the Highlands of Scotland, the land has been pretty solidly sheep racked. So just that the Highlands are that much higher up and so growing your own food is that much harder and the daylight length is much shorter in the winter. Did you go? We did go, yes. I mean, it was a crisis point. You know, it was kind of like, is this the end of our marriage or do we go? And so I chose to stay in our marriage and we went and we moved to this incredibly remote crofting community uh, at the end of a nine-mile single track. Where, where was it? Are you able to tell me, just for interest, because I grew up probably fairly close? Deerbeg. Do you know Deerbeg? I know of it, yes. Yeah, okay. That is pretty inaccessible. And and if you need a hospital in a hurry, it's a very long way. It is. I'm thinking, with five children. So, well, we only had we only had two at home. We had three, three older stepchildren. So... Yeah, so we were the last croft in the last village. <laughs> and beyond us, it just opened into moorland and sea. And you could see out to sky and you could also see to Harris and Lewis. Okay, so so for the UK, that's probably as wild as it gets and still habitable. Yes. But now you're in Devon, so clearly <laughs> you didn't stay. No, so what happened was we went through a very demanding process. Um, we had decided part of the motivation that took us both there was we wanted to create an eco-retreat centre. You know, so bringing together my skills and interests and, you know, my husband's um, architectural skills and interests, which I also share, but obviously he was the professional so we set about building a retreat centre on the edge of a cliff in this very remote place, which was extremely hard work, partly because we met initially quite a lot of opposition in the community. You probably don't remember this, but it turned out that, that one of the people that lived in Deerbeg was the former leader of the British National Party. Oh, my goodness. And he took issue with the fact that we wanted to run a retreat centre that was open to people of all faiths. And he kind of got together with um, one of the local county councillors and one of the free church ministers and initiated this kind of hate mail campaign against us uh, about the fact that we were going to undermine local culture and religion and... When our application went to planning, the, the planning officer actually read parts of the of um, you know the Human Rights Act during our planning permission to say you know you cannot make planning decisions based on discrimination, um, and we got our permission. Yeah, especially not the the free church discrimination. So again, for people listening, the free church is kind of it's West Highland Scotland's own evolution of super hardcore protestantism i my memory is of a friend of mine who qualified as a vet went to work somewhere up not far from where you are was called to see a cow calving 
on a Sunday and somebody threw the keys to his Land Rover in the loch while he was calving this cow because he was working on a Sunday. And that's against the rules. It's seriously hardcore stuff. Well, well what, I, what I found was, you know, it, it was a tough start in, in that community, but um, we did go on to build very good relationships uh, with the Church of Scotland and with the Free Church and with the Scottish Episcopal Church. But it, it took time and it wasn't easy. So let's fast forward because you did the Masters at Karuna, which, again, for those listening who don't know, is a, a training centre in the middle of Dartmoor that does what's now called core process psychotherapy and also, until very recently, taught craniosacral therapy, which is how I came to know about it. So fast forward us, you set up at Deerbag, but then at some point you came back to Devon. Yes. Yes. Well, that um, obviously it was a very hard work experience in all, in all sorts of ways and in all kinds of levels and it took its toll on our marriage and there was a point at which I discovered that my husband was having an affair and we were not able to work that out and so there came a point where I you know I said oh, I need to leave you know I, I can't actually carry on living with someone who's also having a relationship with somebody else not if that's not the arrangement of the marriage, no. No, no. And you know, I was very involved in the church by then. Um, I was in the kind of formal discernment process for ordination right. in the Scottish Episcopal Church. You know, it felt like the local community had really come round us as a family and had embraced my very different approach to Christianity. Right. They couldn't cope with me having an unfaithful husband as well, which is, you know, quite understandable I couldn't cope with it either and uh, and so I left and I came back to Devon and and you know that was quite a turning point for me I, I went and spoke to the bishop's advisor and said you know look I've already done four years of training two years of theology you know what can I do here and she said you'll have to start again and I was going through a divorce you know I had my older son had stayed in Scotland to go to Glasgow University. I still had my younger son with me. And I thought, you know, I've got to make a different decision here. And that was when I started training at Karuna. Right. Right. So we'll come back to that in a minute. But in passing, you said that you were a Christian druid. And somehow, in all the reading that I've done of you, that had not landed with me. Tell me about being a Christian druid. What is it? How does it work? How do you marry two things that seem to me to be have quite a strong dividing line between them? Well, that's interesting um, because I don't experience it like that myself oh, at all. Clearly, clearly. Um, I mean, when I was, if I go back to my early 20s, the shift out of Buddhism for me came through the shift into family life because my experience of Buddhism was based in in retreat in a monastic way of life mm. and I couldn't combine that uh, and also I think it was in many ways quite a transcendent path as well and as I moved into having a young family I really needed a spirituality that was very earth-based and community-based and and could really hold me and and that's I came through Kabbalah back to Christianity and I also met Druidry um, around that time through the order of bods, ovates and druids 
and my experience, you know, what I heard through their teaching was that Druidry is an earth-centred philosophy that a person of any faith can embrace. And so for me, I was reconnecting with, with my Christian roots and also exploring Druidry at the same time. And that particular school of Druidry, it starts with what they call the Bardic Grade, which is all about connecting with the seasons and the elements and with one's creative self. And that's been such an important part of my life, you know, right from my childhood with, you know, with my mother being a craftswoman and my love of myth and stories. So, so you know, the, the bardic exploration really kind of fitted my nature and, and there was no tension for me between, between that and my, my Christian explorations. So I'd really like to unpick this a bit more deeply just purely for my own understanding, because I can see that as with shamanic spirituality, I think Druidry for me is a subset of shamanic work. So let's enfold them all together. They are ways of connecting in the deepest part with the gods of the land. And in the beginning, yes, we connect with the energies of the directions and the energies of the elements. But in the end, we are connecting with the spirituality of the web of life. And so I can see absolutely that the Druidic path accepts people of all other spiritual orientations. How does your Christian self align with the concept of many gods that is inherent to me in Druidry and shamanic practice? Well, I think... My experience is that there are different kinds of druids. Okay. And I wouldn't call myself a many gods druid. I think, well, it depends on what you mean by many gods even, doesn't it? As a Christian, my faith is essentially Trinitarian. You know, it has this very deep mystery at the heart of it where the divine is imagined as a relationship, as a threefold relationship. You know, there's a dimension to the divinity that is ineffable, indescribable, unknowable even. Um, and there's a dimension to the divine that is incarnate, manifest, embodied, you know, that we call Christ. And when I use the word Christ, I'm not just talking about the person of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, I have a much more expanded sense of what Christ means to me. Can you say a little bit more about that? Well, I guess I draw a lot of inspiration from uh, feminist theology. So somebody like Elizabeth Johnson, you know, when she talks about Christ being the beloved community, obviously drawing on, on Martin Luther King, and the beloved community... When I look at my way into the Christian mysteries is, is through the Christian story. And for me, that story is a story about a community. And in the Orthodox tradition, for example, we start the, the Christian, we start telling the Christian story with the conception of Mary. And we end it with Mary's assumption, her rising into heaven, or her enlightenment, if you like. And and so the Christian story told in that way is a story about Mary and Christ 
and the men and women of the disciples and the land and the plants and the rivers and the beloved community. You know, Christ is present in this expanded sense of the beloved community. Okay. And that's, yeah, that's, I mean, maybe that's a form of many gods. <laughs> yeah, I, the, we could explore this quite deeply, but let's, Let's go back for a moment because you you said the divine is a relationship and it's threefold and we had the ineffable and then I led us down a bit of a, a rabbit hole on the incarnate. What's the third part? So the third part is is the Holy Spirit. Say more about that. Well, in terms of the Christian community, uh, you know, the Christian story, uh, I mean, it's not so long since we passed through Easter uh, with the crucifixion and the resurrection. And then uh, next week we'll, we'll have the ascension. So, you know, Christ is, so the incarnate bodily ascends into the subtle realms. I mean, it's depicted as an ascension, but we could see it as as a moving into the other world, as a moving into the subtle realms. And with a promise that although Christ will no longer be present in person, that what will come to us is the Holy Spirit. And so at Pentecost, which is the festival that follows the ascension later in May, there is the descent of the Holy Spirit. And there is this fiery presence that awakens in the hearts and minds of the women and men um, of, of the disciples and in the icons Mary is shown at the centre of that experience and that that's not just an experience that happened in the past, it's been an experience that's been happening in the Christian life ever since. So that is the way that the divine is continually manifesting, incarnating through us, awakening us, transforming us sending us out to engage with justice, with resilience, with, yes, all those things that are expressions of of the spirit in life. Okay. There are so many avenues we could go down with this, and it's so fascinating. But I don't want to end up dragging the podcast purely into my own personal obsessions, although that tends to be where we go anyway. So we might come back to this because I'm still, there's so many questions to be unpeeled here, but let's take us forward a little bit to the manifestation of this Druidic Christianity, I think, as the wild church and the wild monastics, which are two slightly separate things. Which arose first? So they're they're not separate things. They are actually um, very deeply in relationship to each other. And yet, what arose first in manifest form, if you like, uh, was was with a dark wild church in the sense of, you know, in terms of actually creating events, activities, gatherings, that arose first. So tell us a little bit about what that is. Well, maybe this is where I can use my kind of symbol, if you like. I have a kind of symbol that I use to imagine wild church for myself and I see it rather like a Celtic cross which is an equal armed cross a kind of cross in a circle if you like and I kind of imagine that at the heart of that is the body of Christ you know it's this mystic body of Christ the beloved community if you like 
that we've just been talking about, uh, which is made up of, of all that is. You know, all life, embodied life, is there at the heart of, of, of World Church. It's about saying this is what matters, this is what we love, this is what we serve. And then the arms of the cross are kind of like, well, well, how do we serve that? What are the pathways? The four pathways for me, for World Church, are, are four Cs. And probably the one I tend to use first is, is the contemplative, because that is so core for me, is, is this capacity for, for a depth of listening, for a depth of presence that I would call contemplative. And the second is the creative. And that means all kinds of things. But I mean, Wild Church is very emergent. We're continually creating it. And we use storytelling, we use art, iconography, craft, all different creative forms are, are, are very central. We work with with different artists as part of what we do, which kind of leads me into the third C, which is collaborative. And again, that kind of goes back to the thing about uh, about the beloved community. For me, all good things, all deeply spiritual things, are things that we create together collaboratively. And all of these sort of root in each other because collaboration, I think, emerges out of listening, out of presence. And then the, the fourth C, I, I call curious. And I think what I mean by that also, because, you know, the academic in me is very committed to critical thinking in, in the academic sense, in having that kind of deep curiosity that always wants to ask another question you know, that doesn't want to take things as given. And that's very important for me as a Christian, you know, is, is, is to always be kind of saying, well, actually, where are the women? What were, <laughs> what were they doing? Well, what does this doctrine actually mean? Uh, you know, well, have we actually really looked at race here? What about gender? Uh, where is justice happening? Uh, yes, do animals have souls? Do, do all beings have souls? <laughs> just just digging in again and again and again, you know, asking these questions, just not taking anything at face value. So that's the kind of curious side for me. So those four things, the contemplative, the creative, the collaborative, and the curious, those are the four paths of wild church that serve all life, all being, the body of Christ. And the wild church, if I've understood it correctly, it's it's the world is the church. This isn't a church that is located in a, a bricks and mortar building. It's the point is that it's an open church that has no physical location. But you you ordained somewhere, having been told that you had to go back to the beginning and start all over again and deciding you didn't want to do that. At some point you did ordain. Well, I sort of missed out a piece. It's the problem with having a complicated life. It's, it's so hard to get all the pieces in. Uh, but when I was living on Dartmoor, by then, I had a strong sense of calling uh, to ordained ministry, but my priest at that time, or my minister, he wouldn't have called himself a priest, he was conservative evangelical, was really not supportive of women's ordination, and he was not supportive of this strange Druid Christian 
woman. Um, he was supportive of me in certain ways, but he was not supportive of my calling to ordained ministry. So I actually went off to what was then called the new seminary. It's now called One Spirit Interfaith Foundation. Oh, okay. And I was one of the early um, people that trained there. Right. Um, and I actually took Christian vows in that interfaith context. Then I went through the Scottish Episcopal process, but I didn't get ordained again because of the breakdown of my marriage. And then I ended up in the Church of England with them saying, you're going to have to start again. And then later on, I actually went through a formal discernment process, and I'm actually now training again for the third time <laughs> after for ordained ministry in the Church of England. Gosh. Okay. So the Wild Church came into being as a place without a home, as you said, based on these four values, the contemplative, the creative, the collaborative, and the curious. How long has it been up and running, and where did Wild Monastics arise? As part of that? So it's been running for seven years now and Wild Monastics emerged very early. I mean we we started Wild Church with uh, an event and then we started making monthly pilgrimages and yet fairly soon, I think we started in the uh, in Advent 2014 and then by the next year, we had we had started with our, our wild monastics gatherings. But I, I think what's important is that the wild monastics gatherings, in a sense, were the latest incarnation of a series of groups that had been happening for years. I mean, there's a, a great deal that I haven't told you, you know, starting from that, you know, no holds barred Bible study, uh, moving into the Celtic circle. Um, the Tree of Life School for for Kabbalah. You know that that moved into the Celtic Circle became the Wood Sisters, which was a you know a five year project that I did in collaboration with a friend of mine, where we developed storytelling. We built our own red tent in community. I mean, you know, there's like an awful lot of water on the bridge here. Um, yeah, and and then. You know, sort of, so in a sense, wild church and wild monastics were the latest incarnation of an emergent creative process that had been going on since my early 20s. And does it feel like these are a place to rest, or do you think that the emergent process will continue and other iterations and variants will arise? I have no idea. I mean, I'm very aware that, you know, I am essentially a creative, I, I like to keep yeah. creating things. I, I'm not in this to, you know, to manifest a new institution. I don't think we need any more of those. So I just, I just take it a year at a time, really. Okay. And so, in term, in spiritual terms, what do wild church and wild monastics give you that feeds you that you didn't have already? I suppose. I mean, part of why I started wild church rather than continuing with the things I was already doing was that I really wanted to bridge and bring together the earth-based, earth-centered spirituality and Christian spirituality. 
and, and really explore that very deeply. And I think, yeah, e even in just those words, wild church, you know, it goes back to what we were saying about the weather right at the beginning. There's a kind of paradox right in there for many people. You know, when they hear the word wild and they hear the word church, it doesn't fit together for them. And I, and I love that. You know, it straight away gets everybody uncomfortable, gets them thinking. Oh, well done. Yeah. But not the people who come. Presumably you now have a kind of a wild church congregation, people who are joining you for whom this isn't doesn't feel like a dissonance, for whom it feels like a, a home, a spiritual home. Yes, it does. It does feel like a home, but I also feel like it's an ongoing inquiry. I mean, I think I think that's part of the nature. I mean, you said what feeds me spiritually about Wild Church, and what feeds me is this kind of inquiring, emergent quality to it. And and part of why Wild Monastics became so important, really central. I'd say almost that Wild Monastics is the heart of Wild Church, and Wild Church grows out of it even though it emerged first in a manifest sense, because we have this concept of the monastery of the heart, you know, that there is a kind of space in which we can gather, in which we can listen to each other. This is a, a, a heart space, not a manifest space. And that's a space where that can welcome incredible diversity and, and difference and discomfort, and that we can come together and be on a journey, really, a, a journey of discovery. So can you explain for people listening the logistics of how Wild Monastics gathers, particularly given we've just been through lockdown, so it will have been different. So the the ideal and then the lockdown variant of when you say you're creating a heart space that welcomes diversity but can also be challenging, how are the people who come, how are they finding you? How are you engaging with them and where do you take them? Well, we currently meet by Zoom. And so once a fortnight, we, we have a, a Zoom monastery. I love it. And it is open to anybody. And we have a core practice, uh, the prayer of the heart, which draws inspiration from Christian tradition. But it's really about a discipline of learning to enter into a heart space, into a listening space, into a quiet space, where we can both listen to ourselves, to our own hearts, which generally are quite conflicted, and we can also listen to each other. So in a Wild Monastics meeting, we, we have a kind of threefold pattern, which is I'll offer an invitation for reflection. We'll then have a time of silence where we can kind of drop into the heart space and then we'll have a time of open sharing where we simply listen to each other without comment. You know, these are very familiar forms in, in many different traditions. Uh, and we do welcome people of, of any faith background, of, of any gender, of any sexuality. And we are a very diverse group. So I was listening to you thinking, how is, I've actually written on my notes, how is it different to the Buddhist practices that you did many, many years ago in that first psychospiritual community? Because the sound, as you say, it sounds like the kind of thing that is evolving quite a lot in different centres around the world. What is it that makes this uniquely Christian? 
In some ways, I don't know that it even is uniquely Christian. It feels like, you know, there is a core heart practice here that's about deep listening that I met in Buddhism, that I met in Kabbalah, that I met in Druidry, and that I met in Christianity. And I made a choice for myself because Christianity was what I had grown up with. It was the stories that I knew. It was the festivals that I knew. And I think I hit a point in my own journey where I realized I couldn't go deeper into everything. Not because not because anything was any less true, but because I just don't have time yep, you have <laughs> to, to go something. deeply into everything. Yep. And so I made a choice. You know, I made a choice to go deeply into Christianity. Um, but because I'd had these very rich journeys in other faith traditions, I was informed by all of that. And, and I didn't really meet anything new through going deeply into Christianity. But yes, it does have a uniquely Christian articulation. And and I think that's beautiful, just like I think Buddhists, you know, I mean, there are many different Buddhists articulations. There are many different Jewish articulations. There are many different Druid articulations. And I think they're really beautiful, each of them. And I think they deserve to be attended to carefully. Um, and so that's what I'm trying to do with the Christian tradition, really, is 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 to give people the opportunity to actually get to know some of its unique beauties, but in a way that has this shared heart. Okay. It's it's reminding me, as you're speaking, of Cynthia Bourgeau. Is that how you say her name? She feels as if she's heading into a similar sort of place, which has resonances for me with Aldous Huxley's concept of the perennial philosophy. Yeah. Um, being at the heart of of all the major world religions. So I have a question moving on from that, because you're clearly very activist. I, I came to you through Mothia Rahman of XR Muslims, and activism, particularly now at this moment of absolute climate crisis, seems to be at the core of your spiritual practice. But we haven't spoken much about that. So I want to explore briefly, because we're already at our hour, where your activism takes you, and particularly where the spiritual components of your activism take you. And particularly, I have a theory, maybe we would call it a belief system or a structure, that all of our major world religions arose out of our separation. They're all ways of humanity, often man, defining himself or ourselves as separate from the more than human world. Druidry, I wouldn't count because it's it's an indigenous, one of the older spiritual forms, but the ones that grew out of the agrarian revolution. So all three of the Abrahamic religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, are all predicated on separation, it seems to me. Now, I, I'm completely prepared to believe that your version of it isn't, but then the question is, how do we cross the spiritual divide to the point where we go to the point where we know that we are integral to the healing and yet that we need to listen to the other than human world, which I'm guessing is where you get to. Quite a lot of what we've already touched on, you know, when I've spoken about Christ as the beloved community, 
that is what it means for me to be a Christian. You know, the, the, the picture or the story that you, you've told about the Abrahamic and, and other agrarian religions being rooted in separation, I wouldn't deny that that is a significant element of them, but I don't think it's the whole truth in my experience. You know, it's, it's, it's certainly not. Interestingly, you know, I mean, I, I was very anti-Christian in my Buddhist days initially, and I've been through a real journey to actually, you know, that journey of curiosity to actually get to know my own tradition better and to look at my own assumptions. And I, I was carrying assumptions about the fact that it's split matter and spirit, about the fact that it was antithetical to the body, that it didn't see the equality of all beings. You know, I was carrying those kinds of assumptions. And actually, the, the more deeply I've gone into Christian tradition, you know, going right back to uh, the early church mothers and fathers, to the Celtic traditions, I've found all kinds of teachings that are actually not upholding that kind of separated view. And they're very orthodox. You know, they're not, they're not fringe teachings, they're orthodox teachings. And I've had to kind of change my own mind <laughs> about my faith. Um, or, or I've had to change my mind and then reclaim Christianity as my faith. So in terms of, but going back to what you were saying about activism, I think for me, I don't think there is a split between contemplation and action. I mean, there is a non-duality at the heart of the Christian tradition for me that is very, very deep, that is about kind of how we see the nature of reality. And, you know, contemplation is about how we see the nature of reality. It's about entering into. That's the kind of core teaching that comes from the mystical side of, of Christian faith is that we are engaged in a practice of union. Um, and, and fundamental to that practice is, is the natural world. You know, the, the divine, the logos, is manifested in the logoi, you know, in, in all the manifestations of life. And, you know, these are teachings that go back into the early church. And so, you know, to contemplate is to be an activist. To be an activist is to contemplate. They are, they are one and the same thing. You know, to listen to, to all that is, to listen to life, to enter into union with life is, is, is to love, is to care and want to act with love and care in all the ways that that can manifest itself, you know, in the smallest ways and also in the ways of, well, you know, we were talking at the beginning before we began recording about the Glee Project. You know, I'm very engaged in uh, sustainable land use, in transforming the way the Church of England uh, manages its land, for example. You know, we're working with partner organisations like the Devon Wildlife Trust, with More Meadows, um, in ways that are both very practical and also deeply informed by contemplation, you know, working together as partner organisations, 
what it means to be different, to come from different places. You know, I'm interested in rewilding, which is different from, say, the biodynamic farmer we're working with. We have different priorities. We have to learn to listen to each other. It's not easy. Uh, you know, the prayer of the heart becomes very, very important in those kinds of contexts. Right. So I hope that's giving you a taste at any rate. Definitely. Yes, absolutely. And so the Glee Project is where your activism is heading just now, or are there other branches of it? I think that's the main one at the moment, yes, yes. And and is it going to be national and possibly international? Are you trying to change the whole framing of the way the church manages its land across the totality of the church? That's what we're hoping. I mean, we're working with the extradiocese, uh, with a biodynamic farmer, with a charity that is engaged with water management, with, with local church, you know, wider community engagement. And we're wanting this to be a kind of flagship project. We all want this to be yeah. a flagship project. So the exodasis are committing to a community organisation taking forward the management of, of the Dartington Glebe and modelling a process of regenerative agriculture, rewilding, community engagement uh, that can then, if it's successful, be rolled out across the diocese and hopefully can inform the wider Church of England. Gosh, gosh, that sounds really powerful. And are you aware of other people doing similar things in other dioceses or are you it, do you think? I'm not aware of it. That doesn't mean that that we are it. Um, And I'm sure there are people doing things in their own ways. Mm. And, you know, I hope to learn more about them. But I I don't know, is the honest answer. It sounds very much of the moment. I I would be surprised if there wasn't somebody somewhere at least having ideas. But if you're blazing a trail, then that would be fantastic. Gosh, there is so much else I would love to talk to you about, but I think we really have hit the end of time. Maybe we can come back for a second podcast at some point, maybe when the Glee Project has taken off and we can talk about that as our starter and then go into... I'm I'm very curious about your experience of the divine, actually, and how how that feels. But that is a whole separate podcast. We really don't have time to go there. Let's leave that. So... So, Sam, thank you so much for your time and for all that you're doing. And we'll point people at the Wild Church and at Wild Monastics and hope to join you sometime. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to talk with you, Manda. So that's it for another week. Huge thanks to Sam for the depth of her living of her life, for the contemplative, thoughtful, heart-based, connected nature of what she is doing and the way she expresses it. The Glee Project sounds totally fascinating. It doesn't have its own website, but if you're interested, there's a River Dart Wild Church Facebook community that I will link in the show notes. And Sam's own website is wildspiritcommunity.com. We mentioned several books on the way through, and I will link to those also in the show notes, which are on the website accidentalgods.life, along with the membership program, the Patreon link, and all the other good things that leave you feeling contemplative and heart-based and connected to the world, I hope. We will be back next week with another conversation, 
And in the meantime, as ever, thanks to Caro C for the music at the head and foot, to Faith for the website and all of the tech, and to you for listening. If you know of anybody else who would really like to delve deeply into the spiritual nature of the world, of activism, of politics, of the ways we can make a different future, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.